The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. You know, our machines, we like to use a phrase called advanced simplicity. And we build our machines so that anybody can operate them because you have to be able to build this labor force and this workforce. And we get folks from all walks of life, you know, former delivery drivers and warehouse workers to plumbers to science students. And so we want people to be able to come in and be effective right away. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 4 is here, finally. That was uh, my best trumpet impersonation. <laughs> if this is your first time listening, then you're probably wondering where you're at. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. And I am your host, Harry Duran. So excited to kick off season four and super honored to be partnering once again with the team at Cultivated, who you heard mentioned at the beginning of the show. We're honored that they've continued to partner with us as the title sponsor for season four. Stay tuned for a round two episode with one of the co-founders. If you're not familiar with them, once again, they are serving as vertical farm brokers and help match your project with the right indoor farm technology, which is going to save you a lot of time and money. I bet you want to know why. It's because the service is free since the service is paid for by their partners. So make sure you check them out, cultivated, C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Okay. In case you are just joining us again for the very first time, you probably missed all the amazing interviews from seasons one through three. We wrapped up season three with Austin Webb of the fifth season fresh. We kick off season four with Shannon O'Malley. She's the co-founder and CEO at Brick Street Farms, a hydroponic indoor city farm growing leafy greens. And their mission is to grow the most nutritious produce at the heart of consumption. We talk about how Shannon became an accidental co-founder within the controlled environment agriculture industry, and she discusses 
the key differentiating factor of Brick Street Farms, shares some of the amazing work they're doing to educate society on this growing segment. And we jump into a variety of topics, including the recent extreme weather at the time of the recording, uh, specifically the deep freeze in Texas, and how that kicked off a discussion about climactic events and how they're impacting how our food is grown, harvested, and delivered to us. And then finally, Shannon speaks about the initiatives Brick Street Farms is involved with, including combating food deserts, which is near and dear to my heart. We're super honored to have a couple of uh, return and new sponsors also for this show. I'll introduce both of them, and then we'll jump right into the content. First up, new sponsor, Freight Farms. For those of you not familiar with them, they manufacture and sell the leading vertical hydroponic container farm, the Greenery S. It's built inside a 40-foot shipping container, and it uses innovative climate control technology paired with an IoT app called Farmhand to enable anyone to grow fresh fruit anywhere in the world. We were honored to interview John Friedman way back in Season 1, Episode 5, founder and CEO of Freight Farms. So make sure you check that episode out if you haven't already. Visit FreightFarms.com forward slash Vertical Farming Podcast to learn more. And return sponsor Indoor AgCon. Whether you're starting up or scaling up, Indoor AgCon can help you grow your vertical farming business. Live and in person this year, the premier trade show and conference for vertical farming and CEA heads to the Hilton Orlando from October 4th through 5th. Explore an expo floor filled with new product resources and business solutions. Attend idea-packed educational sessions led by top CEOs and thought leaders and connect with peers and potential business partners at the networking events. Learn more and take advantage of early bird registration discounts at indoor.ag and save an additional $100 off registration with our promo code VFPOD2021. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes, I'm looking forward to a next round of reviews. Leave yours at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, and I'll be sure to read it out. So excited to be back with you. Let's get started and jump into this conversation with Shen. So Shannon O'Malley, co-founder and CEO at Brick Street Farms. Thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I look forward to this discussion. So where's home for you now? Well, home for me is St. Petersburg, Florida. So we are in West Central Florida, part of the Tampa Bay area. And how long have you been there? I've been here going on about 14 years. And Brick Street Farms has been here just about six years. Okay. And where'd you grow up? I'm originally born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So Western PA went, grew up, college and grad school were at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, as is the case sometimes when you're on LinkedIn and you start to see what people are into and what their hobbies and interests are, I did notice and something that caught my eye was, let's see if I had that right. A volunteer paramedic with the National Sea Patrol? Yes, <laughs> I was. I'm a bit out of practice now because I'm obviously in St. Petersburg for the last 14 years. But yes, I was a member of the National Ski Patrol for 16 years. I joined when I was 16 years old. I was uh, an avid snow skier growing up. And you can join at the age of 16 and you actually get your paramedics training through it as well as survival skills and joined at 16 up until the day, up until the season that I moved to Florida. And uh, I imagine there might be some interesting stories from that experience. <laughs> it was, it was a lot of fun in Western Pennsylvania. I mean, through the winter months, there's not much else to do, but ski and there's two Appalachian based resorts, not too far from Pittsburgh. So it was seven Springs and Hidden Valley uh, skied 
almost every weekend. You learn a lot about survival skills and, you know, cold weather emergencies. So yeah, I was a certified paramedic for about 16 years. Very interesting. And do you have a an appreciation for the seasons in terms of like, there's people that just like to live in the warm weather, and they just really never experience winter. And then some people I'm in Minneapolis now, so I'm kind of processing this like, so you're on cold <laughs> weather all the time. Uh, well, no, we, we're actually having a beautiful summer here. But when it's cold, it's cold. Like it's like minus it's really 20. Cold. It's really cold. So it's really cold. Yeah. So there's a school of thought that says, well, it, it lets you get to appreciate the changing of the seasons and, and then the winter just when you've just had about enough of winter then you know spring comes and then summer comes and then fall comes and did you ascribe to that school of thought as well i you know being born and raised in the midwest and pittsburgh considering it midwest you know it's cold six or seven months out of the year it's a sleeting gray cold unlike your you know colorado's so that's why I fell in love with skiing, keep you busy. It's something that you can do in the cold weather. Since I've been in Florida for going on 14 years now, I find myself missing the cold more and more. When I first left, I was like, I don't care if I ever see snow again in my life. But, you know, 14 years later, I'm actually starting to plan ski trips again. So, <laughs> you know, it's the grass is always greener kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it, I don't know if the word that people describe it as it, it hardens you up or it makes you a pre, well, it, it, when you think about like what a, like bears do, like they hibernate and then it allows you, I think it's this idea of contemplation and reflection and what you, something you can do in like those winter months when you, you're not out and about. So I'm trying to figure out if there's something to do that. <laughs> it's called like the season of rest and, you know, rejuvenation. So nature has these cycles and the winter months are a time for rest and contemplation or, you know, football if you're from the North, but uh, yeah, it's definitely a season, a down season for sure. In Florida, you don't really get that so much. It's just, you know, sunshine all the time. And it's just, is it a little bit hot or extremely hot? Extremely hot and humid. Yes. Very, very humid. <laughs> I was just in Naples three, two or three weeks ago. One of my best friends, he's got a, uh, a restaurant there in Naples. Yeah. It just kind of smacks you in the face as soon as you leave <laughs> <does>. the house. <laughs> it really, it really does. You just have to be prepared for it. That's it. It's funny because you drive around and you see these really fancy houses, but the whole backyard is like screened in. So it's like a little complex in there. <laughs> I imagine that's to keep out the bugs. That's to keep out the bugs. That's, you know, that's something that I learned when I came down here. When I was in, in Pittsburgh, I was an avid gardener, master gardener in Pennsylvania. And it's very different seasons. Water source is, the, you know, the Great Lakes, which is amazing fresh water source. The soil is very fertile. And you have the wonderful season. What winter brings with it is a season that kills off any pests and puts bug into a dormant mode and allows everything to, to rejuvenate. When I came to Florida, I tried the same thing and, you know, just did not have the same success. So I tip my hat to our traditional soil farmers and those that are prolific raised bed folks because, you know, they spend a tremendous amount of energy and effort in composting and you don't get that season you know, for pest control. And so going back to those cages, that's really what it's about is the, I mean, it's mosquito season in full force right now. So. Wow. You mentioned master gardener. Is that a, you need to get qualified 
to be called. Yeah, it is a sort of it is a certification that you can go through. There's a couple nonprofit groups that offer it. You can also go through some local universities. It's someone who grows for hobby, not for livelihood, to put it that way. And interesting to see how that's come back full circle to where you are now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I started with soil and I will admit that I failed with that down here in Florida. And so I ended up buying hydroponic stand of sorts, tower system, and really liked it. Then I ended up converting my two car garage into my first hydroponic experiment, uh, semi climate controlled, but not really. And just really expanded, fell in love with it, started experimenting with NFT, deep water culture, vertical growing, aeroponics, just started playing around with everything and everything from lettuces to herbs to flowers, tomatoes. And then from there, just kind of a hobby gone wild. You know? <laughs> and, and Harrisburg Street Farms and shipping containers six years later. Were you always adventurous in terms of, you know, I get the sense that there's a lot of tinkering going on because if you start with something in your garage and then you keep at it, is do you, do you think that's like a function of like your personality? Because I, I noticed early on you were into like business intelligence projects and, and information systems. So is, is that sort of how your, your mind works? It does for better or for worse. So my background is in engineering and I really enjoy the process of building things. And I'm not sure I'm ever really done building something. So continued to build the, you know, the garage grow room, and then I built a shipping container. Now I've built 17 shipping containers, and now I'm designing this hub concept. So I just feel like it's this process that never really ends, and it's this iterative process where I've kind of taken everything that I've learned along the way through schooling, through my experience with uh, master gardening to I worked for Duke Energy for a long time. So in their environmental sustainability initiatives to improve uh, two-way electric grid uh, and implement uh, different energy-saving technologies, smart grid, if you're familiar with that term, smart grid. And yeah, I uh, work very closely hand-in-hand with my engineering team here at Brick Street Farms now. It's great to have a team to work with. It's not just me anymore. <laughs> but uh, yes, I think my favorite part is building. Were you like that as a child? I think so. I was always a big fan of Legos and blocks and the Lincoln Logs. I had the Lincoln Logs and the coloring books. As a child, though, I was very physical, meaning I had a lot of energy. So <laughs> I was put into sports sports very young so i think I, I didn't really sit still very much so i think it was more sports do you remember mr wizard i'm probably dating myself with that reference. <laughs> i do is that on pbs i think it might have been on PBS. yeah it was on pbs yes i remember mr wizard for the listener who might not have any idea what we're talking about he was uh sort of like a, a son he's the bill nye yes of our generation Yes, of our generation, because I just, I turned 50. He was the original science guy. Yes, yes. And it was just cool to see him do these little experiments. And do you think that's important? And, and you know, when someone that's young demonstrates an aptitude or a passion for things like engineering or building, that, that it's important that they, they find an outlet or a way to, to express that? 
Well, absolutely. Uh, whether your interest is in science or the arts, I think a younger generation having exposure basically to STEM, science, technology, engineering, manufacturing, you know, if I would have thought that building a, a CEA indoor hydroponics company out of shipping containers was possible as a child, I mean, this industry didn't really exist, not in the form that it does today, way back when. But I definitely think that it laid a foundation for me today to at least have the curiosity to try. I do think that there's certain personality traits, people that are maybe more risk tolerant. <laughs> when you mix engineering and building things with people that have a little bit higher risk tolerance, like entrepreneurs, that combination can be a <laughs> you know very forceful trait. Yes. And so... Timing-wise, you mentioned that you're working on this garage project, but was vertical farming on your radar or hydroponics or anything? Is this sort of like you sort of came in through the back door because you were just doing it yourself and just figuring out that there actually was an industry around these things? Yeah, I am an accidental co-founder. <laughs> so I was working for Duke Energy and Smart Grid Projects. So I was working on the forefront of infrastructure projects to make our electric grid and carbon footprint significantly more efficient. So to use less resources and to make it smarter with a lot of AI and machine or drone monitoring uh, is what I was working on. And then I was doing this kind of garage project in the background. And then I started to apply what I had learned in school through engineering and what I was learning at Duke Energy to my garage project. <laughs> uh, and I started building a platform, a control platform, a monitoring platform. I started using like the first beta version of Nest Cams that were out there. Just kind of kept kept at it. Really rudimentary app that we built. And from there, I just realized that, you know, humans could do better and that we had a, there was a, a tremendous opportunity the produce that was coming out of the what I the plants that I was growing in my garage were better than what I was finding at the grocery store. And I realized that I had a two-car garage and I was growing enough. I was sharing it with my friends, I was sharing it with my neighbors, I was bringing it into my coworkers. I mean, we eat a lot of vegetables, but that was more than than a household of two could eat. What were you growing? All different types of lettuces, spinaches, kales, all the main culinary herbs like basil and cilantro and then peppers. Everything from banana peppers to hot peppers, uh, tons of those trialing heirloom tomatoes because heirloom tomatoes from Pennsylvania are phenomenal. <laughs> and you have a really hard time getting those down here. Eggplants, okra, all different kinds, anything that you can grow. And I just, cucumbers, just too much for us to eat. And I started to realize that, look what I was growing in my garage. And it tasted better than the grocery store. And I started thinking about, man, like we can really do this on a scale. And while I love the concept of community gardens, I tend to find that they lack the magnitude to make a significant impact, either being seasonally or being run by volunteers for whatever it might be. And I realized if I could do this in my garage, why not use find another space. And my husband and I, quite frankly, we just did not have, and his name is Brad Doyle, my co-founder. We didn't have the money to buy a warehouse. We were entirely self-funded to get started. And so we bought a shipping container and the rest is history. So we needed a controllable space 
And I mean, I would probably be in a totally different environment if we had a warehouse to get started or a totally different situation if we had had a warehouse. Might be more like some of the other folks that you've interviewed. (laughs) But we ended up with shipping containers and we've continued to tinker and apply some of the smart grid technology to our farm containers. And we've continued to iterate and we can produce two to three tons per container per year. Wow. Which is pretty incredible without pesticides, without fungicides, basically in all, we are not certified organic, but we do practice organic practices and, uh, you know, we're really proud of that. One thing that I think is interesting is your experience at Duke and what comes to mind is the recent power grid issues in Texas, right? And so this it's top of mind and people are thinking about those, but I feel like your understanding of how that works and how your farms can leverage that to its best use and benefit and also be prepared because if I don't know the extent to that, how something like that can happen in other states, but I'm sure that's that's something that you've thought of. <laughs> it could happen anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For different reasons. I mean, Texas was because of a deep freeze that, you know, once in a century freeze. Well, maybe not once in a century anymore. But in Florida, it can happen with a hurricane or a heat wave. I mean, the, the Pacific Northwest in California right now are having a tremendous drought and heat wave. I mean, their electric grid is overloaded right now with rolling brownouts, blackouts. So what we've done is we've taken those learnings And we built those very early on into our machines. So the two largest expenses with indoor farming, from my perspective, are electricity and labor. You still have, and there's a few other ones in there, but if I had to pick two. And so very early on, obviously, light selection is critical. Type of lights, the strength, magnitude, whether they're dimmable, all of that goes into your decision. But We took building our farm and looked at it from an ecosystem, almost as if it was a living, breathing ecosystem, not just the plants, but the mechanics of it. And how do we control our air conditioning with our lights and with our power source and what time of day we're using? So we were very much focused on the relationship between all the power demand and our electric source in order to reduce our carbon footprint. So that was first and foremost about how to divert power within the machine where needed, how to build redundant systems, how to move power through different components, and how to provide a relationship. So if a machine was getting too hot or too cold so that it could, it was intelligent enough to self-correct right off the bat. And so that's what we've learned. It's called self-healing systems. So we've taken components of both smart grid and self-healing and applied them from the beginning in our farm containers. And do you feel that that puts you in a position where you feel at least a little more confident that if something of an event of that caliber were to happen, that you'd be well positioned to, to handle that? I believe not isolated, we would not be. But in combination with some of the other steps we've taken, such as natural gas, generation on the back end so our machines can run off of electric or gas okay so that we that's an option and we're just moving into solar offset with battery backup so i think when you take the self-healing system internally and you combine it with redundant systems and different power sources that we've done that we're in an excellent position regardless of what happens around us 
Yeah, I mean, in, in the uh, three seasons, and, and this will be season four, this episode, but uh, I think it's the first conversation where there's been a, a little bit of a deeper dive on the power <laughs> that supplies these systems and, and and thinking through all the challenges and redundancies that are necessary. And I can't imagine anyone more well-suited to figure those things out than someone who's had experience in, in energy as well. So. Thank you. I think Duke gave us a little bit of a leg up from, <laughs> from that perspective. We know what happens when power goes wrong. So, yeah, yeah. And so, talk to me about the the thought uh, process and what was happening in your mind as you start to think about you're at Duke, but this is picking up, and now you know, <laughs> is this going to become a company? Am I gonna? Are we going to get bigger? And and who's going to run in it? <laughs> All those questions. I don't know if I overestimated it or underestimated it, but it has been a rude awakening the last six years. So yes, we started with three containers and then quickly added two more. So my husband and I were co-founders and once we started building, we were both still fully employed. I'm actually, my husband worked at Brick Street Front, or I'm sorry, Duke Energy as well. And I was for the first year and a half, two years, I was fully employed at, at both companies and so was Brad. And it started to take off. And we realized very quickly that in order to service our customers and for it to take off, it needed a dedicated resource. And I, we always knew that that was going to be me. And so I stepped away in February of 2016. I stepped into Brick Street Farms full time. And we have grown exponentially since then. One, a key differentiating factor for Brick Street Farms is that our focus is wholesale hospitality and direct to consumer. Mm, okay. And not mass distribution through grocery stores or food supply companies. Want to name any of them, but we're, you know, we're not looking to compete in that market space. So there's a lot of folks that are competing for those big grocery accounts. And quite frankly, they can have it. It's wonderful what they're doing. I think I think it's great to bring a fresh product, but what that's going to do is it just commodity. It, it just commod commoditizes. It makes a commodity out of. Thank you. Commoditizes <laughs> the product, and it just becomes another name on a shelf, just like the same products we have from Southern California right now. Exactly. Yeah. And, but I mean, it is a great product that they're bringing, and you know, we're all thankful for their contribution. But our model is focused on being located in the community that we serve. So we are putting our hubs in urban centers, in urban cores, and we're servicing the 30-mile radius around each hub. So we're building relationships directly with hotels and restaurants, mom-and-pop restaurants, school districts that surround us where we live and farm our product we also do distribution entirely ourselves. So we do all the delivery. We control our supply chain. And then finally, we have an on-site retail market at each of our hubs. Our new hub is being built, targeting end of the year to open, first quarter next year at the latest. And we have an on-site retail market. So think about it like we truly are your neighborhood farm. You've got your butcher shop, you've got maybe <laughs> your local brewery, and now you've got your farm that you can come to and get all your fresh produce, 
some other locally made goods, enough to make a dinner, some beer and wine. Shop and and walk home, and you know where it came from. So with our direct-to-consumer model, we really are focused on the community that surrounds us, and we're not trucking anywhere. Why was that a model important for you to adopt? I saw that it was a gap in the industry. I really wanted to connect directly with our buyers. So we started with a small CSA, so direct-to-consumer in that model. But because our machines our machines grow predominantly leafy greens, herbs, flowers, that a CSA in a traditional sense got a little bit boring after a while. So we focused on expanding to our wholesale hospitality accounts to provide the restaurants with the best, freshest, local, nutritious greens that they can get. But by focusing on the community immediately around us, we're able to pass through the longevity of the product to our consumers. So our product lasts 17 to 22 days. That's great. And we are harvested and delivered within 24 hours. So whether it's restaurant account or direct to your kitchen, you know, you get the full benefit of it being locally grown. And having had this model in place for several years, I imagine, what's been the response from the community? Fantastic. We're going to just, you know, put a little pin in 2020 that happened. (laughs) But it's, uh, you know, that's the model that we started with. And that's the model that we're going forward with is I envision a hub in every major urban city in a very walkable district. In addition to that, we have cold storage lockers and home delivery. There's a lot of a lot of options that we have in order to get the product into our consumers hands. We would not have been able to get where we are today if we didn't have the amazing reaction and support of our community. We're driving a membership program. We are the premier produce provider in the Tampa Bay area. We're working on expanding throughout the state of Florida, hopefully up the East Coast. And we like to focus on maintaining that direct relationship with whether wholesale account or your family. They recognize our brand. They know what it means. They can see it, touch it, feel it. They can come see the farm. And it just builds a loyalty that I don't think folks in the massive grocery industry have. Yeah, that makes sense. And we're betting the house on it. So we're literally betting the farm on it, I think. is <laughs> You know, we're doubling down. We're expanding. So that's our expansion plans is to continue to build these hubs. Our first one, our... We're in our headquarters now. We'll have our first serious, significant independent prototype here by the end of the year. And then we'll have another one in Tampa in 2022. What does the job market look like from your end where these are roles, careers that people may not have thought were possible or even existed, you know, 15, I wouldn't have. 10, you know, 20 years ago? Yeah. And, and then... How do you think about that in terms of educating the community? Because it's it's education on a couple of fronts. It's education on the product, nutritional benefits, where it's come from, locally sourced. But then it's also people that could see this as a possible career and aspire to something in this industry. If somebody had told me in college that I would be running an urban farm, a controlled environment agriculture farm and hydroponics, I would have thought you were out of your mind. <laughs> so... It's a great question, and education is a huge piece of what we do. From the consumer standpoint, it's really educating about what hydroponics is and how that compares to organic 
predominantly is what we deal with, and then also conventional. Typically, once we get our product in a consumer's hand, it speaks for itself. And then they see the longevity of the product. We just typically have to overcome some nutrient questions and typical pesticide questions, which are very easy to answer. As far as the community for who we are, we actually very early on, mostly out of necessity, but we have built significant relationships with local universities. So we have three or four major universities in the area that we have an accredited internship program with. And so we court or recruit students from biology, botany, chemistry, horticultural sciences, environmental sustainability. We recruit even business and marketing students. We recruit them. They come here and you don't have to have any experience to start. You just have to have a desire to make a difference in the world and have a passion for what you're doing. And we can train you to do the rest. So I think 15 years ago, there was maybe this many people, a tiny amount of folks, and and it was maybe more traditional greenhouses. Yeah, hydroponics stuff. Hydroponics yeah. way back when. But nowadays, uh, with Brick Street Farms and other companies in this space getting the press that they have recently, it really is a known career option. And we have no lack of students that are interested in it. And we actually have a lot of people that are making career changes into CEA. You know, it's always great to find people with hydroponic or greenhouse experience, which is typically the only talent pool we have access that would have any type of experience that would translate. But I mean, any of the sciences can really be applied, you know, inside inside of our farms. And what's the reaction to folks who are new to the industry or, or maybe in a, an adjacent or a completely different industry when they start experiencing this? It's a lot harder than they think it's going to be. <laughs> They think, oh my gosh, it's indoor farming. Push some buttons and the lettuce comes out. <laughs> it runs itself, right? So <laughs> The Jetsons, yeah. Yeah, they think it just takes care of itself, but you're still dealing with a living, breathing product, you know? And as much as we can manipulate and influence Mother Nature, she still very much has a mind of her own. You know, our machines, we like to use a phrase called advanced simplicity, and we build our machines so that anybody can operate them because you have to be able to build this labor force and this workforce. And we get folks from all walks of life, you know, former delivery drivers and warehouse workers to plumbers to science students. And so we want people to be able to come in and be effective right away because like I said before, electricity and labor are the two biggest expenses and Training somebody takes a tremendous amount of resources, especially for a startup. So we work on a streamlining the workflow from the farmer's perspective to be as efficient as possible. Okay. I like to say efficiency doesn't just apply to electric or utilities. It applies to human efficiency as well. So regardless, when people come in, they realize that, you know, you still have in our case, and I know some other companies are focused on robotics, in our case, you still have to touch a plant at least three times. You know, you still have to seed it. You still have to transplant it. You still have to harvest it, which still requires human intervention from our model, at least. And final piece that we don't talk about a lot are the sanitation and cleaning processes that are required. Because if you don't have a healthy system, you're not going to have good plants. And that is, 
a very labor intensive process too. Well, I was going to bring it up and you, you gave me a nice segue, but we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss what's recently in the news, uh, Bright Farms and Salmonella. And so I'm wondering, you know, what your reaction was when you heard the news. And obviously for everyone in vertical farming, it's, you know, it's a bit disappointing to hear something like that. And you hope it doesn't color people's perspective of, of what's happening. But I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, it's a reality check, I think, for all of us in the CEA industry. I think that I'm not sure the general public will pick up on it as much or any different than any of the other salmonella or E. coli outbreaks that have occurred. Yeah, that's true. For the traditional soil romaine or the sal Fresh Express had one or salad bags. There's been five or six of them over the last couple of years with major recalls. I'm not sure the layperson will pick up on Bright Farms being hydroponic, but what they're picking up on is just another salmonella recall. But maybe they will. I think that it's a rake up in the sense that none of us are immune to that, and it just further reinforces the vigilance that we have to have to maintain our environment's cleanliness and sanitation. Yes. Cleaning and maintenance is actually probably more than 50% of the effort that goes into running a hydroponic farm, a controlled environment agriculture. You know, being indoors, challenge is, and to Bright Farms example, when you're a closed environment, if you have an infestation or an infection or an outbreak, it's like a Petri dish. And it's going to spread rampantly, whatever it might be, whether it's <laughs> fungus gnats or algae or salmonella. So staying vigilant with your management, you know, techniques is definitely critical. Yeah, and I think it's important that, I mean, it's for all intents and purposes, it's still a nascent industry. And I think these things, are. this probably won't be the last time. But to your point, it is a good wake up call, especially for, for folks in, in the in the business and to understand and, and just be more aware that that's something that, that can happen, that there's proof that it did happen. And I imagine there's a lot of... <laughs> A lot of extra scrubbing going on lately. <laughs> I think a lot of people are double checking their own systems, their own processes. I think one advantage that CEA has in this particular instance is that it is very easy to track your lot and per perhaps the source, in, in my opinion, the source of the contamination, which may be easier in this sense from a warehouse to a particular road to a particular pump or tank or whatever that might be, as opposed to... 100,000 acre fields. That's a good point. Yeah. It could have been in the field. It could have been from the worker. It could have been from the transportation truck. It could have been from the warehouse. It could have been from the distribution center. Typically in CEA, you go from farm to transportation to end user. Now that transportation can either be a third party or be controlled by the actual farm. So I, there's significantly less steps, which I think would make easier to manage and take corrective action on. Yeah, makes sense. I'm curious how prepared you felt uh, for taking on the leadership role at, at Brick Farms. <laughs> well, I'm not sure you know anything fully prepares you to be CEO of a startup. You definitely pull from your professional background. I had the opportunity to climb the ladder a bit at Duke Energy, which I think prepared me. Okay. 
major difference for me was that we were self-funded when we started. So I cashed out my 401k. I remortgaged my house, you know, and when that is on the line, you know, failure is really not an option. (laughs) And so that has a certain added level of stress. And, but what prepares me for this, you know, startups are unlike anything else. They have a unique sense of stress and that I'm not sure working for an established corporation has. I I recognize there's stress in both, uh, but coming- But there's a safety there. There's a fallback option. (laughs) Yes. You know, I realize now I've got how many families are dependent on our payroll and, you know, we have investors. So we've been- successful to date if you've if you saw our announcement if not you could find it on our instagram i did i was gonna ask you about that as well yeah yeah we were uh you know it was our final seed round we were successful in bringing the likes brothers company on board one of the largest most influential agriculture companies in the u.s they're an ideal partner for us Uh, they completely believe in our hub mission and bringing production to the point of consumption focused on end users they're behind us 100%. Just the resources and the influence that they bring brings us a tremendous amount of credibility and uh, obviously capital. But, you know, as a leader in this industry, you know, it's not just me anymore. It's not just me and Brad anymore. Moving into this next level, you know, we're beholden to our investors. We are beholden to our community. We've made commitments. And we are beholden and we put our staff first and foremost. Uh, you know, if you take care of people, they'll take care of they'll take care of you. And even as a small company, we try to reward our employees with, you know, obviously livable wages and health insurance and, you know, lots of other incentives that we work to make their lives better. It's um, making this transition now and looking ahead to our Series A. So we're preparing for that now. We'll be opening that up here in the next 60 to 90 days to do our first Series A raise, which is a huge jump. I think that uh, biggest lesson for me as a leader is I'm always looking ahead at where we're going and what we're doing and driving the company. On the other hand, I have to remember sometimes how much we've already accomplished and uh, give the proper recognition with how far we've come and with what we've achieved. And I think that's something that's important for me to constantly remind myself. Yeah, because it's sometimes hard to see how much progress you make. If It's only when looking back, they can be like, oh, I can't believe it's been so many years and we've made so much progress. Just surviving 2020, I feel like we should get a round of applause. (laughs) Yes, everyone that has. I, you know, it's like the year that, I wish it didn't happen, but it was good and bad. You know, we learned a lot, made us get efficient, but just like everybody else. And just what we learned, what wasn't working and what was broken. And obviously, you know, you, you talked about owning the supply chain and just not realizing how much dependency we have on exterior forces and a, to your another wake up call for the industry. And I think um, it brought a lot of awareness also to having access to local food food deserts, you know, all these conversations are now, I feel like they're more top of mind now for people. I couldn't agree more. Our membership and direct-to-consumer drastically increased during 2020. 
couple of reasons. One, I mean, there was major supply chain issues at grocery stores and what was there was getting sold out. And when people realized that they had a farm in their neighborhood or that, you know, they could either walk to or people could drive to people, you know, we were open, obviously with social distancing, but we were open the whole time. And, you know, now that things are starting to normalize, you know, We've maintained most of those relationships. Those customers have stayed with us because they realize it is a better product and we are a valuable resource to have in their neighborhood. People want us in their neighborhood. And then as restaurants are starting to open again, to be able to get a local product that is so fresh, it helps stretch their dollar from a purchasing perspective. And kind of to layer on 2020, I mean, you've got the West Coast and Southwest going through a massive drought, which they are now rationing water for farmers in California and Utah. And 30% of fields are, are not even getting planted this year wow. because of the water shortages. And so you're starting to see prices of basic goods, lettuce, almonds, onions, garlic are starting to go up. And folks realize that that we're right here. Yeah, there's some crazy. What's the stat on almonds? It's they use a lot of water. It's some absurd, like a <laughs> gallon of water and almond. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. that something is, like that. Yeah, it, I remember when I heard it. It was like makes me feel really guilty every time I eat an almond. <laughs> yes, they are incredible. Which is a lot of people are switching to oat milk because of that. But yes, yes, we are. We as well. It goes a lot further. What was your entry into the the overall bigger industry? As, I don't know if you you were able to make start making it to events and conferences and have you started to connect other folks as well? Just in the last year, we've sort of Brick Street Farms has been quietly but aggressively advancing. I would say we have been uh, with my background being in engineering and all the Duke information that we just that just discussed. We've been perfecting our systems quietly for the last five or six years. To build a model that I would put my own seal of approval on and put it up against any other machine that's out there on the market. So not only we design and build our farms, but one of the unique aspects is that we also operate those, grow the produce and sell the produce. So there's a saying is kind of eat our own dog food. Our farms are only as successful as we build. So Brick Street Farms is only as successful as we build our, what we call our Thrive Containers. And Thrive Containers is our manufacturing brand. It's owned by Brick Street Farms, but Thrive Containers is the brand for the machines. And Brick Street Farms can only be as successful as good of a machine that we build. That's true. So we work to build a machine with highest ROI with the lowest inputs. So, you know, we, we are really working to build our machines to be as efficient and productive as possible because we're not building them and just letting them go. Ship them off. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's, you have a vested interest in ensuring that uh, they're, they're performing at peak capacity. Yep. And we're able, we have the benefits. So we've got our building team and we've got our farming team. The feedback loop is immediate. So we're able to make a tremendous progress very quickly. I was curious as you start to think about growing the team and, you know, there's different needs that you had when you started in, in 2016 and now it's fast forward five, five, six years later. What were some of the experiences you had in deciding like where to, where it made sense to grow the team and where you could hold off and how that's panned out 
and what that looks like and what are some different challenges you might have now? Oh, gosh, I feel like that's probably a question you could ask any startup. Yeah. Like I said, being self-funded to start until our recent Likes Brothers investment, you know, we were, we were operating on a, what we brought in is what we could invest. So we worked on a shoestring. So we focused on investing in technology and engineering because we needed to produce a farm that could grow the, the most nutritiously dense, healthy, beautiful crop, the highest yield possible is what we needed because our income depended on it. We also wanted to work on how do we reduce our electric bill and how do we reduce our labor costs, you know, there because we believe in paying folks a living wage and we do spend a significant amount of time training our staff. So we invested first in our engineering. I was able to contribute quite a bit to that. And then uh, building our farming staff. So I can't go out and hire people that know how to do this, or at least now, I guess you could start to, but the last few years. So going out and recruiting farmers and then how to train them to be farm managers and how to move into supporting customer service, which is our wholesale customers and then our retail market. So for them to get that full life cycle, we are now investing in all areas of the business obviously continuing to invest in our engineering and our designs, which will be debuted with our Brick Street Farms hub okay. at the end of this year, which is a completely new design from what we have at our headquarters. So that'll be a state-of-the-art facility with experiential retail. But right now we're focused, in addition to that, we're focused on expanding our brand, our marketing, our consumer outreach, governmental affairs. We have a team here that is directly focused on working with local government officials from the city, state, county, federal level to influence legislation that benefits controlled environment agriculture in urban areas. This is an area that our company is very passionate about because we want to be in the urban core and most ag laws are based on rural traditional agriculture and, and some of it is prohibitive, let's put it that way. And so we want to be right downtown. So we have a team that is working on advancing legislation in favor of urban, true urban farming, but to do it under the lens where we have no chemicals, no pesticides, uh, carbon neutral. And that's a huge initiative for us. And obviously we're starting at home here in Pinellas County. It's a very important one because just to the topic of food deserts, right? And and having local access to food and it's something I think people don't think about. So the fact that you're making it a conscious effort to have those conversations, to have those discussions with local officials because the lead time on getting something like that changed is probably a, a little bit long, so. <laughs> oh, we've gone more, we've gone further than just talking. We're actually drafting legislation. Oh, good. And, yeah. you know, working in Tallahassee to help uh, lobby and get this, get these initiatives passed. Trying to help set some state level standards that counties can follow. But then we're also working on local building and zoning codes. People don't seem to realize how much building and zoning codes influence business. It's true. And it completely influences whether or not we could be in your neighborhood. So we've, we're going top down and bottom up. Very smart. Luckily, everybody wants us in their neighborhood. So Yeah. Yeah. Especially when they're, they're fans of the product and fans of the brand. And I think you've built up that goodwill in the community to show that you're here to stay, you're here to grow, and you're here 
to sort of rising tide lifts all boats. Like as you guys have success, then the community sees the benefits of that success as well. Well, we're a healthy addition to the community. And the fact that we're so modular that we can produce so much food that we can feed a small city. And, you know, one other area that we're investing in, you've said this a couple of times, is we have Brick Street Farms as an associated. We also have a 501c3. So Brick Street Farms has Desert Farms Foundation. Okay. And that is our nonprofit organization that is focused on addressing food deserts uh, in America and specifically focused on food inequality and nutrition inequality in our communities. So... What we focus on is how do we apply the technology and engineering from Brick Street Farms to address food deserts? And we're not looking at this of bringing a grocery store into the neighborhood. We're looking at how do we bring fresh, nutritious produce to the heart of the issue. And we're partnering with local public and private institutions here to actually place some of our farm containers in the most desperate food deserts in our community. And at the same time, that's very much an urban area. At least food deserts can be anywhere, but in our neighborhood, it is uh, urban. And we are working on, you know, closing that gap and building that relationship because Desert Farms Foundation really believes that, you know, it's nutrition for all, which is our mission. And we realize that with the capabilities that we have, that we have a responsibility positively impact the communities that we that we live. So we're investing heavily in our foundation. Well, I think that's really exciting. It's really inspiring because I think uh, it's creating an awareness not only for the consumer, but also for the people who can see that this is providing a benefit for where they live. And, you know, their kids now are growing up and seeing that this is happening and, and speaking to our earlier discussion about the potential for exploring this as a career and so all those now, all that visibility, I think is, is helpful. And I think what's also interesting is how all the, the things you've been working on your entire life have sort of now the little pieces have come together and probably in a way that you wouldn't have imagined to have you end up here with uh, Brick Street. And, and I think it's been really fascinating and, and really uh, educational for me to, to have this conversation with you. No, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you for recognizing that. It's It's been a journey. We have a road ahead of us. I think the next 24 months are going to be exponential for Brick Street Farms and our expansion. Like I said, we are tackling CEA in a different way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're really excited that, you know, also by supporting Brick Street Farms, you are directly supporting Desert Farms Foundation. So, we look forward to how we can expand both entities. So we'll make sure we include uh, all the links we mentioned in the show notes. And I, I know that you guys are pretty active on your blog as well. So there's constant updates highlighting team members. <laughs> you just recently announced the funding. So you're, you guys do a really good job on the marketing front as well. Well, I will let my marketing team know. Thank you so much <laughs> for the compliment. And where's the best place for folks to learn more about Brick Street or to, to connect with you or, or the team? The best way to learn more about Brick Street Farms is at brickstreetfarms.com. In addition, if you want to learn more about our technology or the container specifically, you can go to thrivecontainers.com. Okay. And in short order, our Desert Farms Foundation website is currently being constructed, and that will be coming out soon. But you can find some basic information about the foundation on the Brick Street Farms website as well. And if there's any marketing announcements that are coming up, and obviously you've got an, another 
possible good news on the funding as well <laughs> when that happens. You know, feel free to always just share with me and I'll make sure to promote it as well on socials. Absolutely. Of course. I know you've been working with our head of business development, yes. uh, Madeline McNaughton. Yes. And uh, yeah, she will always be in touch. And, uh, you know, we look forward to staying in contact. Yeah. And, and so, Shannon, thank you for the for taking the time. I'm just really appreciative that we got connected. And I just as I've been learning more about the industry, and I'm trying to tell some of the different stories of people that may not be getting as much airtime or stage time. So it's really refreshing to just paint a, a broader picture about what's happening in the vertical farming industry, and to have it be inspiring. I'm Latino. So you know, to people of color to women, you know, to understand that this is a industry that's growing that has a lot of opportunities. And I think that the future is pretty bright. There's more than three companies in this space. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get Yes, we will absolutely get there. And I appreciate you taking the time for speaking with me. I've been listening to your podcast for a while, and I find all of these varying perspectives interesting. So I definitely will continue to listen. I appreciate that. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Harry. Thanks again to Shannon for coming on the show and sharing her stories. Full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Special thanks to our Season 4 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking to a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology will suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Also, special thanks to Freight Farms, manufacturing and selling the leading vertical hydroponic container farm, the Greenery S. Visit FreightFarms.com forward slash Vertical Farming Podcast and Indoor AgCon. Learn more and take advantage of early bird registration discounts at Indoor.ag. And don't forget the $100 off you can save with promo code VFPOD2021. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm to learn how a podcast can be helpful for your business at Fullcast.co forward slash VFP15. And again, that reminder, if you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, and we will be sure, that is me, (laughs) read them out on future episodes. Tune in next week for my conversation with Craig Hurlbert of Local Bounty. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.